Persincrucis de nemicis nostris libros Deus noster, in nomine Patris, Filii, Filius Santi. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today's first reading is a passage from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. When St. Paul had arrived to Corinth, he arrived from Athens, as we know from the Acts of the Apostles, and in that city, in Athens, he had not made many converts, few but not too much, despite his brilliant discourse in the Areopagus. It was a brilliant idea to suggest that he had seen an altar dedicated to an unknown, unknown God, and that this was the God that he was coming to present to them, Jesus Christ. He was the unknown God. And this is the one he wanted to present now. Jesus Christ was unknown to them, but he knew him, and his name was Jesus Christ the one that they did not know. Well, that did catch their attention. Who was this God? Tell us about Jesus Christ. But when he spoke about the resurrection, that the Lord was alive, that he had been killed, but he had raised himself up from death, they scoffed. They said, no, no, no. We don't believe that. That's ridiculous. To suggest that somebody could actually rise on his own from the dead, it's impossible. They scoffed. They weren't ready for that kind of thing. It seemed too outlandish, too beyond their experience. It is as though they all were too fixated on human reasons, a human understanding, perhaps, of the gods, of religion, as though... God were like a better version of themselves, a greater, more powerful, stronger, but at the same time vulnerable. There were many gods, and some of the gods were stronger than others. Certainly they were not able to rise from the dead, conquer death. Death was so definitive for them. So, when he arrives in Corinth after that experience, he comes with a certain amount of trepidation. He knows that Corinthian society is is pretty morally corrupt. He says, I come with fear, much fear and trembling. And indeed, he must have felt that he had a difficult task ahead of him. He thought, how can I change these people? These are unchangeable. These are so dyed in the wool with their customs, their idolatry, their immoral way of life. They can't be changed. But we know from the Acts of the Apostles that as he was heading towards that city of Corinth, he had a vision of Jesus, another vision, where Jesus appeared to him. The same one whom he saw on the road to Damascus. And the Lord appeared to him in order to comfort him, to encourage him. 
Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be silent, for I am with you, he says. We get that from the Acts of the Apostles. Do not be afraid, but speak. Don't be silent. Well, those are indeed comforting words to hear. I'm with you, he says. Indeed, you are with me, Lord, in difficult moments. Difficult moments in my responsibility. Taxing moments in my health. Demanding work. When I am discouraged by my weaknesses, you're with me. Or just my, my tiredness. I'm just tired. Fatigued. Or challenging moments in the apostolate. At times we have to listen to people who have lots of problems, have lots of hardships. And we have to be there for them. We have to support them. And it can be very comforting to know that the Lord is with us in our vocation. He's always with us. As he said to St. Paul, do not be silent, I am with you. But we reaffirm that truth now. I know that you are beside me, Lord. Like when we read that beautiful, beautiful Psalm 23, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me, your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. The image of a rod, a staff, this, this sure instrument that, that makes us kind of stable, but especially the figure of the Lord, the figure of God next to us, walking through thick and thin. Perhaps I would suggest that maybe even this psalm which was known to St. Paul, reawakened itself in Paul's heart after he was told by Jesus himself, I am with you. He probably thought of that psalm after. Yeah, it's true. Despite the fact that he had really prepared that speech in Athens very carefully, he was like, he had thought about this. He had tweaked it. He had uh, revised it. And indeed, uh, the image he used was quite brilliant. But after that, maybe after that vision, St. Paul ceased putting all his reliance on carefully argued speeches. And instead, we are told, he, he said, I proclaim Christ crucified. I have come here not with human wisdom, but just to proclaim Christ crucified. Sort of to make sure that faith is grounded in God alone. You know, when, when John the Baptist came, we saw that in yesterday's uh, account of his martyrdom. When we read his earlier life that he preached in the desert wearing camel hair and eating locusts and that disheveled look that he must have had, that many people came to him from all, all parts, all places they came to him. And they were impressed at how he spoke. And indeed, he must have been quite uh, 
stunning to listen to. With this, these harsh invectives, many people were drawn. Even Herod liked to listen to him. He liked to hear about what he had said. And this was way beyond the haughty attitude that you could see in the Pharisees and the, the maybe cool distance that they might have expressed because they too preached. But nothing like, like John the Baptist. So today, in the first reading we get from the letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul says, well, he speaks about the unspiritual person and the spiritual person. He had now, with those visions and with his life and with the graces he had received, become more and more a spiritual person. He said, an unspiritual person, he says, is one who does not accept anything of the Spirit of God. He sees it all as nonsense. That's perhaps a reference to the, to the Athenians there who didn't accept the resurrection. He sees it all as nonsense. It is beyond his understanding because it can only be understood by means of the Spirit. A spiritual man, on the other hand, is able to judge the value of everything, and his own value is not to be judged by other men. As Scripture says, who can know the mind of the Lord? So who can teach him? But we are those who have the mind of Christ. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Well, I, I thought, well, who, who wrote that? I mean, he's, he's quoting, quoting scripture there. And I uh, found out that this is actually a reference to the prophet Isaiah. And along section where he says you, you can't inform God of anything that he doesn't already know. He's beyond us. And he only leads us on, or we only understand once he reveals himself to us. And he encourages us to be men of discernment. St. Paul speaks about this unspiritual person who does not accept anything of the Spirit of God. Well, that expression, an unspiritual person, if that's the actual word he used, well, it's very much open to debate the exact translation of that word. Apparently in Greek, the original text says psychikos, the psychikos person, which in itself is not very easy to translate. Sometimes it's translated as the natural man, or the other is the animal man. The Vulgate says, Animalis autum homo, non percipiat eaque sunt spiritus dei. Animalis autum uh, homo. Animalis autum, well, to be like an animal man, to be just a purely human man. It's the person who acts only by using his own human faculties, his intelligence, his will, what else am I going to use? Well, yeah, you have your intelligence, your will. But in some ways you, you only re rely on the wisdom of this world and the things of this world. But the spiritual man, the man with more supernatural vision, is like, a, is like reborn by the grace of God and grace elevates his faculties, actually elevates them and enables him to form actions and th thoughts 
that have more supernatural value. He's able to make acts of faith, able to make acts of hope, and, and true, true acts of charity. There's a, like a stepping up the level. That's why he distinguishes between the unspiritual man who sees things merely through the human prism and the spiritual man who really now has a new vision. He can see much more. And so he talks about those two ways of thinking. He also describes the way of philosophy or human thinking and then the way of God or being an unspiritual person and being a spiritual person or let's say a a merely animal person and, and really a man of God. When we approach anything, when we have any challenge, we have to see three, we have to see everything through the lens of God's love. Our Father said, We have no alternative. There are only two possible ways of living on this earth either we live a supernatural life or we live an animal life. And you and I can only live. The life of God, a supernatural life. Father, that's in Friends of God. He gives us those two alternatives: supernatural life or an animal life. Animal life sounds harsh when we say that person's an animal. I mean, it's obviously a very harsh description of them. And I don't know if, if the similarity is is accurate, but I read recently or rather heard a talk recently by Kevin Majors when he went to speak to the Heights, Potomac, Maryland. And he makes a big distinction between the right brain and the left brain. And uh, he was addressing the question of addictions, in particular for young people, and uh, addictions to pornography and this kind of thing. And, And he was asked, well, can you define what an addiction is he spoke about this he said it was a fear or phobia of not being able to endure a situation that immediately attracts you that you have a craving for the phobia of having to endure cravings I have a craving for this thing and it's going to be so hard for me to endure it that I won't be able to do it. And so that, I just give in. It's too powerful, a pull on me. And then, of course, once you give in to that craving, that increases the the cycle of dependence. But we have cravings. I want this right now. It's not the same as hunger. Hunger you need is a horrible, it's normal. It's a normal thing, but a craving is not the same. And People don't like it, just to endure that craving. They think they're going to die, almost. And so he begins to explain the difference between left brain ways of thinking and acting and and right, right brain. And he tries to draw us away from the left brain. The left brain, I mean, it's necessary, obviously, but... He explains how left brain is all about practical application, about means of doing things, the kind of technical point of view of things. It's very hands-on, 
focused on the narrow moment of the now, how I do this, whereas the right brain is like a different world. It's almost as though we had two brains, literally, and the, the connection is just the, the sort of communication between the two, where one brain says to the other, I got it, I got this, I'll take care of this, I'll do all this. But the right brain knows how to stand back. It looks at things from a much broader perspective. It's like the spiritual man. Sees things from higher up, perceives meaning, purpose, mission, ends. And of course you can see through the right brain things from the faith perspective. The left brain is all about means. How do I do this? How do I get about this? But what are you doing? What is your end? That's, that's the right brain. That tells you that. And if we, re, if we rely too much on the left hemisphere, everything ends up just about getting things done. And there's a kind of poverty of motive there, of what you're actually doing. Why are you doing this? When you function only in the left-hand brain, you're, you're not really motivated by anything truly transcendent. The left brain ends up serving the lower cortex, and essentially that is a response to fear, a response to those cravings. That's what the left brain attacks. Kind of problem solves fear. Problem solves cravings. Just get rid of them. And one sees that also in an excessive love for comfort. I just want comfort now. I don't like this discomfort. Or too much fear of discomfort. That's all the work of the left brain. It's a fertile ground for addiction. If your primary focus is to be comfortable, that's the work of the left brain and you're, you're kind of focused in on that side. So the left brain sort of ends up serving all those lower ends. And he speaks about what happens with morality when you view your moral life primarily in terms of left hemisphere or left brain rather than the right brain. Morality. Even how you experience the moral life for the healthy person with the, like you could say, a, a right-brained soul, a person who is truly right-brained, morality is fundamentally about bonds. We ultimately do the moral thing, the right thing, because it deepens our bond with God, with others, with our family. It leads, you know, for, for you to strengthen those bonds, it leads, to, of course, to fidelity, to loyalty, to sincerity. You want that bond with yourself and, that, and God, with yourself and that other person. You want that bond because it's a great, great value. But the left brain doesn't, doesn't pick up on that. For the left brain, morality is basically about rules, fulfilling certain rules. And any kind of infraction on these rules is seen by the left brain as simply a technical violation. 
I violated this rule. Well, so I guess I have to reconnect it. Of course, we have our rituals for repentance and confession stuff. But isn't that why even confession can become a kind of a rote thing? Well, I did this. Well, I broke that rule. I did this. I mean, yes, there are sins. Whatever. What do you want me to do? I just broke the rules. Okay, we just like reconnect here. And uh, there's, there's no concept of a true bond with God. But it is, you know, the, the person who, the left-brained person who says, well, it's my day for confession. What? I have to go to confession. Okay. But that's not really the spiritual man. It's not really an attempt to reestablish the deepest bond in our life. The left person or left-brained person can be quite, he says, impoverished and ends up being completely rule-based. Of course, we need rules, guidance like that, but the, the real issue is not the breaking of rules, but really the poverty of the bonds. And if we were to apply this to St. Paul, the poverty of the bonds is the animal man. The spiritual man has these rich bonds. Bonds that we have at our work, with our brothers, with our family, of course, fundamentally with God our Lord. We have to establish bonds with our founder, St. Josemaria. We have to have established bonds with Don Alvaro. That's why we have two paintings here, or, or photos right, right here. When those bonds are weakened, then, of course, all the bonds, when they are weakened with others, with God, but then everything goes off the rails. The rails come off. There's no control. The person with the, the left brain mentality or dominant left brain have, have the idea of freeing a real freedom as being just unrestrained license. I can do what I want. But really, freedom is the ability to maintain and deepen the bonds that we have, to deepen them with the true, the good, and the beautiful. Am I a spiritual man? Am I one who has those bonds? We may know that our friends are struggling with something. We may know that our brothers are struggling with some area. We may see it in their personality, in their character, in their actions. But the most important thing is not to give them more rules to rely on, but to deepen the bonds with them. So it's so important to listen to others, to really listen, to let them speak. It's a, it's a form of actively listening. Because when you're actively listening, rather than saying, you know, you should do this, you should read that book, you know, read that, that's a very good book, you should read that, that's the answer. That's not exactly listening. It's just giving another rule, it's just giving another thing to do. Naturally, we have to do those things, but, you know, people love to be listened to. They like to be taken seriously. It calms them to think that somebody should really pay attention to them, that they have enough value 
that people should care, that they should, their presence is something to be enjoyed and even appreciated. And maybe, maybe we can work on that in some way to, to be more actively listening. And by doing that, we are increasing the bonds. In some way, we are becoming a spiritual man. And just by the way we speak, we thereby have more clout. In today's Gospel, St. Luke tells us that Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and he taught them on the Sabbath. And his teaching, it says, made a deep impression on them because he spoke with authority. Why did his speech make such a deep impression? What he spoke about was not just the ideas that he transmitted, the truths he actually said about, about, the, about the love of God and about salvation, and the truth that he said, but it was somehow people were captivated by the bonds that he was able to, to instill there. Each one must have felt truly loved. He was not aloof and cool and distant like the Pharisees. And I think the same thing would have happened earlier with St. John the Baptist. He says, uh, Kevin Majors also says that another way of viewing these two hemispheres of the brain is that the, the left brain always turns means into ends. We get confused about means and ends. I, I dedicate myself to this, which is really just a means. But we think it's so important that it like, becomes like an end. Whereas the right brain, the right hemisphere, deals mainly with ends. ends. The left side sees, sees only means. Imagine if you just got hyper-focused on means. All rules are just means to help us to grow in human virtue and supernatural virtue, to grow in the bonds with each other. Like even order is not an end. Order in our room is good. Order in our things is a good, a clean drawer, I don't know. But it's a means, it's not an end. It serves for pleasant and cheerful atmosphere, it's a way of serving. That's the end. That's the end. And ultimately, we serve the bonds of others, or our bonds with others. Cleanliness and orderliness, orderliness cannot be the end in and of itself. And we can get to see people that get excessively obsessed with uh, you know, not a single spot here or there. We ask our Lord now, as we finish our prayer, make me a spiritual man. Not an animal man, or homo animalis, as St. Paul says. So that I can be focused really on my purpose, my end, my true vocation. Especially that of establishing the deepest bonds with God, with others, my brothers. And Our Lady will help us to come to that. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. 
my Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. 